Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I'm Louise Palenker. Here on Media Path, we, we throw down suggestions on content you might find interesting, like movies and TV shows and streaming and cable and video on demand, discarded VHS tapes, pirated basement recordings, <laughs> things that have piqued our interest, and we hope they do the same for you. Weezy, what do you have for us this week? So have you been watching Mayor of Easttown? No. HBO, Kate Winslet, once again, our greatest American actors are British. <laughs> and she's British, and you would never know that she's uh, from the UK. She seems extremely American. She's absolutely Pennsylvanian. As her personal <laughs> life crumbles around her, a small-town Pennsylvania detective, Mayor Sheehan, pours herself into investigating a local murder. The series explores the darker corners of life in a tight community, and it examines the wrenching ways in which family and tragedy can hold us together while tearing us apart. Brilliantly acted. She's so good in this. It's just riveting. Good and everything. Good suggestion. Yeah, well, and they're rolling of... out one, one a week because it's HBO, and they're, they're selfish like that. Well, perfect. I have two streaming docs this week. Okay. The first one is on Netflix called The Bleeding Edge. And what caught my eye about this, it's done by the fine folks that brought you the Woody Allen, Dylan Farrow series on HBO, Amy Ziering and Kirby Dick. The premise of this one is, you know, we all think big pharma, the pharmaceutical industry is this giant, powerful menace that controls our lives. But as it turns out, the medical device business is even bigger and more insidious. It's a $400 billion a year industry. There are a couple of things that make this business really disturbing. One is the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, which is responsible for testing and approving these new medical devices. The FDA is made up of commissioners, most of whom are or have been connected to the medical device industry. The FDA is a classic revolving door where commissioners get appointed because of their industry connections, or when they're finished their tenure as a commissioner, they got a high-priced gig when they leave. There's dark money that ends up through lobbyists, and just like with drugs, doctors can be compensated for using or recommending different devices. Totally legal. Kickbacks are legal. And that setup seems questionable enough, but then you have to add the element of what's called pre-market approval. It turns out that new medical devices, they use smaller studies, shorter studies than they used to test drugs. That is to say, new medical devices before they are cleared to be put on the market are not adequately tested. And 70% of the testing is done by manufacturers themselves, which is obviously a conflict of interest. And if a product is proven to be unsafe, it's harder to get it taken off the market than it is to prove it uh, to approve it to get it on the market. It's, it's frightening. They do a, an IUD called Esure. They do cobalt hip replacements. They do this cervical mesh stuff. And I, I mean, giving folks constant um, medical problems for the rest of their lives. So any, anyway, here's how they end it. They give you tips. Here's what you have to remember. If you need something like a hip replacement or any device implanted, research the device online, always get a second opinion, and ask your doctor if he's being paid by the manufacturer of the device. Also, it's no not yard sales. Say that again? No yard sales. No, no yard sales. Purchase it uh, through a through a trusted authority. My ex-wife had two hip replacements. And mm -hmm. as soon as I saw this thing, I called her and said, did you get the cobalt hip replacement? She said, no, mine's titanium. But the cobalt one, cobalt as a chemical leaches into your body, mm -hmm. compromises your immune system, and gives you Parkinson's-like symptoms. And it's just... The, the the horror stories are terrible. So that's, you have to do so your terrifying. due diligence. Yeah, go ahead. What because people were already experiencing problems, which is why they needed to replace a part of their body. <laughs> and now uh, it's difficult when you get that, you know, factory recall letter yeah. and they want your hip back. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Heartbreaking. All right. So I, ha I have a little bit of shame in this game. I've been watching a reality game show called The Circle on Netflix. Are you familiar, Fritz? Nope. Okay. 
So bear with me. This is going to be to you a little alarming that this is what I'm spending my time doing. Uh, this is a game show where players move into separate apartments in the same building and they communicate only virtually through a specially designed app called The Circle. And just like in the real life fake internet, they can portray themselves in <laughs> any way they choose. They can play as themselves or catfish style. So for example, one contestant is playing as her husband and making him a single dad. You know, that's pretty adorable. One contestant is a tall techie male playing as a hot young female and Lance Bass's assistant is playing as Lance Bass. The show is hosted by Michelle Buteau, and her voiceover is extremely funny. I know this is a lot of data for you to download, Fritz. Do you have any questions? I just love the whole idea of gender fluidity in a game show. That's going to be fun. Yeah, but they're all trapped in their own apartments, so they never actually encounter each other. So when an alert comes up on their TV, they freak out because they're just so lonely that any information is just like <laughs> manna from heaven. They're like, oh, my God, we're playing a game. That's it's hysterical. it's fun to watch. Sounds great. Do you want to introduce our guest? No. Even more fun. I got to do another thing here. Hang oh, on. one more thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is really important. Yeah. My second selection is another documentary you can find streaming on Prime. It's called Time, as in doing time. Surviving the Passage of Time, The Inevitability of Time. It's directed by Garrett Bradley. It's the story of Sybil Fox. She's a woman whose husband is in jail on a 60-year sentence for bank robbery. And this is her fight to not only get her husband out of jail, it also is her fight against the system that tends to over-incarcerate black men. She'll describe the prison system as racist and nothing more than a system of slavery. She's a very compelling public speaker. You'll see her in front of small and large groups making her point. But to me, the most compelling thing about this film is that for 20 years, with the use of old school home video cameras, Sybil has been taking videos of herself raising six boys without her jailed husband. It's 20 years worth of sometimes grainy home video of this woman's daily fight to keep her kids on track. We get to observe her physical and emotional changes over 20 years. We watch her blossom into a confident, adult woman becoming a strong advocate for not only her husband, but other men trapped in the system. It all builds up to the day her husband is released. It's a very touching story about a fiercely devoted mother and wife. And whether or not you're drawn into the big argument about prison in general that we're all having right now, you will admire this woman for her dogged determination, staying loyal to her kids and to her husband. Her husband finally gets released after doing 20 of his 60 years sentence. Pretty good. Pretty good story. Pretty touching. Wow. I can't wait to bring on our guest. For my money, one of the best writers in comedy. I've known him from the stand-up world, but you could tell when he was doing stand-up that he had an interesting take, interesting observations, and very smart language. And you knew this dude was destined to make his way to other formats, which he did. He's a comic and an actor and a writer and a voiceover artist. He wrote and performed on the Ben Stiller show, wrote and produced on The Simpsons, made appearances on Seinfeld and King of Queens. You've seen him on HBO, Showtime, Comedy Central. He's got a great new podcast, The Dana Gould Hour. It may be the only podcast, Weezy, that has its own singing jingle. It's very impressive. He's the host of an hysterical talk show parody called Hanging with Dr. Z, where he dresses up like Dr. Zayas from the Planet of the Apes and does a better Carson than Carson. We're happy to visit with Dana Gould today. Welcome, Dana. Hi, how are you? Good. My resume is horrifying. <laughs> no, it's not. It's a, no, it's, uh, it's diversification personified. Yeah. It's, excellent. It's, a, it's like that kid who was in every club at, in, in high school. That was he, <laughs> right? And, 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 and a decades long avoidance of profit. <laughs> That's commitment. That really is. Yeah. I didn't know. I, I just found out that I was, I've been classified as a nonprofit by my accountant. <laughs> <laughs> But let's talk about pandemic-inspired innovation, which I think sure. Dr. Z, hanging with Dr. Z, because it we is. were first told about this by Denny Tedesco, who's one, your producer, and we yes. and, 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 and we a, both and said, friend. what, what, what? And then, of course, <laughs> you watch it, and the elevator pitch would be if Merv Griffin were an ape. Yes, per perfect, perfect. <laughs> um, I, I yeah, to to give you the the backdrop to how it all started. We go back to, uh, I was a writer, on, if I'm assuming that 
assuming we want to, or we can just move on. <laughs> oh, no, I want to hear everything. Uh, my ex-wife also has two uh, titanium hips. Is this a strange coincidence? Uh-oh, um, there's a pattern here. Yeah. Is her name? Uh, no. Um, Wait. <laughs> uh, long story longer. I was a writer in the early 90s on the Ben Stiller show, okay. and I shared an office, very funny guy who I met at that time and became very good friends with the name Rob Cohen. Um, and I had an idea for a sketch, uh, for the Ben Stiller show. And it was, you know, when a, when a musical comes to town and they do a commercial for us, like, you know, I remember I'm from Boston, like at the Wilbur theater, it's the music man. And then they would have the, you know, the clips from the music man as filmed on stage. And I thought it would be funny to do, uh, coming soon, uh, Planet of the Apes, the musical, and it was a constructed musical of Planet of the Apes. Uh, this was before The Simpsons did it, and I, uh, they did it later, and I had nothing to do with it, with their version, which was much funnier than my version. <laughs> they, they, I didn't get to do it on the Ben Stiller show because we got canceled. Oh. But but that um, was the show that launched him as a director. That, that was the as everything. One. Yeah, that uh, uh, Janine Garofalo came from that show. Bob Odenkirk mm -hmm. came from that show. Uh, uh, yeah, no, that is uh, everybody's uh, that had a, a, a good, uh, good quality group. So the, the, the idea was the first commercial parody would be for Planet of the Apes the musical. And the second commercial parody and the other half of the show would be from the producers of Planet of the Apes the musical, Dr. Zayas in Mark Twain tonight. And it would be <laughs> Dr. Zayas dressed up as Mark Twain doing Mark Twain tonight. And I thought it was really funny and the show got canceled. I being a Planet of the Apes nut, uh, just wanted to do the makeup. That's the only reason you write the show is so you can do it. You know, that's the whole point. Um, so we, we never got to do it years later, uh, 2010. So 18 years later, I'm talking to John Hodgman, who I'm sure you all know from the daily show. Mm -hmm. And, and, and he had found a picture of, uh, Maurice Evans as Dr. Zayas reading Mark Twain's biography and made an internet challenge to somebody send in Dr. Zay is doing Mark Twain tonight. We were talking on the phone about something completely irrelevant. And I said, you know, what's so funny. I wrote that as a sketch 20 years ago wow. for the Ben Stiller show. And he said, I'm doing a show in San Francisco at Sketchfest. Do you want to do it? And my first response was, no, like, this, this, that sounds like a giant pain. <laughs> but then I thought, well, no, I, I have resources. Um, I'm very good friends with a lot of special effects makeup people. Uh, and, and I literally was like, let me call you back. <laughs> so I call up Greg Nicotero who is now the exec producer of The Walking Dead and directs most of the series. And, and he has a big special effects company called KNB Effects. And they're huge. And, he, you know, all the Tarantino movies, it, they do it. So, and he's just my friend. So this is the conversation. I call up and I go, <laughs> hey, Greg, uh, do you know of anybody that I can pay to go to San Francisco with me and do a, like a Dr. Zayas makeup on me? Like, a, you know, like a movie quality Zayas makeup. Hang on a minute. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Uh, that was it. That was the conversation. So, uh, I, Let I, me check my book. Uh, I called back. No, he just yelled across the room. He was at work. Anybody oh, okay. Yeah, sure. So I called up John. I said, yeah, I'm in. And you can see that on YouTube. It's uh, if you go Dana Gould, uh, Mark Twain or Dr. Zayas, Mark Twain, wow. it, will, it will come up. And, and the reason it's so funny, the, oh, in fact, uh, the only reason it's funny <laughs> is because the makeup is exactly what they had in the movie. Absolutely. Wow. It took three hours to put on, takes an hour and a half to take off. I had to have my head molded. I mean, because the, the joke only works if it's him. Right. It doesn't work as a crappy mask. And if then everything else mask, then everything else becomes irony because on your show 
you do topical monologue and you hear yes. you hear yes. you, you hear this ape making these metaphysical points which are hysterical well that, and that the costume the, makes it funnier right exactly and that and that was the beauty so so i did him on that and then people hey do you want to and i ended up doing him like i would host benefits as him i introduced planet of the apes when it aired on tcm uh, as him you know it just became this weird um. cottage career of mine of doing <laughs> weird weird appearances as dr zayas and and over the of years of doing him he developed his own personality where i started to turn him into this weird showbiz guy like you said merv griffin is exactly it i remember being a kid watching like whenever orson wells or anybody would come on merv griffin they would talk about famous people but like they were their friends so it's like you know i'm over at Susie flechette's house we go <laughs> antiquing you know, she's in a bad mood because she's an escrow with Alan Alda. They're not speaking, you know, so it's and I love that world, that show business world. And so that's what Dr. Zayas became. So, so explain Dr. Zayas's personality in the movie, because I, I in the did movie, he's Mitch McConnell. He's Mitch McConnell of the apes <laughs> in the movie. He's the villain. He uh, he's the villain in the movie. And uh, and the way, you know, he's the uh, evil ape that wants Charlton Heston dead because uh, he knows that mankind used to be uh, used to run the planet. And that's the big secret in the ape culture. And yeah. Charlton Heston is proof that they're living a lie. So he wants him dead. He's I played him like that was a role, but he did lots of other stuff. Uh -huh. You know, and uh, I did lots of other things. I did. Uh, I was doing with six. You get egg roll with a very young <laughs> Lindsay Wagner at the Pasadena Playhouse. You know, it's just that kind of, you know, I was doing Jamie Farr and I were doing Holmes and one on ice. And we kind of oh, yeah. Like, it's like way inside yeah. 70s showbiz. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah and the crap that these people had to do to make a living you know <laughs> you know you know adam west and i were doing a two-man version of apocalypse now we performed it at car shows all across the country <laughs> you know whatever these poor guys had to do to make a living but I and then but now so now we're in the pandemic my ben stiller off made Rob cohen says why don't we do dr zayas's talk show from the 70s and because it's the pandemic, we can do them. We can do it all COVID friendly because they'll we'll have them in another room. We'll film them on a monitor. Right. You'll talk to them like space goes coast to coast on Adult Swim. Yeah. And just think about it. like, no, I'm not going to think about it. That's it. That's brilliant. That's what we're going to do. Uh, and then I called your um, uh, Denny Tedesco, your friend of mine, and said, like, hey, we want to do this thing. And and that's how it came. And then it just became calling our friends and saying, like, we have this ridiculous idea. Uh, do you want to do you want to do it? And it was like uh, it was literally a labor of, of love for, for me and for other people. It's you know, it's an it takes an hour out of your day <laughs> and it's ridiculous. And uh, it was at the height of the pandemic, so no one was doing anything. You have so all the great. talk show constructs. You have the music guy, Rusty Steele with the Rusty steel wheels Steel Wheelchair, who <laughs> always has this nonplussed look on his face and responds to you with like half-hearted enthusiasm when you ask him a question. <laughs> but you were talking about constructing fake commercials on the Ben Stiller show. One of my favorite things about hanging with Dr. Z is the commercials. Yes. My they're, they're fake commercials. My favorite one is Mickey Rooney's Potato yes. Fantasy <laughs> Family <Potato> Restaurant <laughs> in Sherman yeah. Oaks. Oh yeah, you God. have now. And again, like I really want to give everybody credit because it's not, I mean, those are, uh, those products are created by a really brilliant guy named Chris Shapan. And and he he makes those things and puts them online uh, and just like on his Facebook page. And I'm just a fan and I contacted him. We have mutual friends. And I said, like, hey, we're doing this thing. You want to be involved? Like, yeah, I'd love to be involved. And then Mike Upchurch, who edits the commercials, Chris's products. And again, these are all people that have other jobs. They're all doing other stuff. But they did this because it was the pandemic and it was it was fun. My favorite was Tor Johnson's liver and onions. Come to the liver oh, and stay man. for the onions. And there's another one. <laughs> there's another one on your merch page uh, sponsored by the Bevilacqua heating and air conditioning. Yeah, that was the, the <laughs> yeah, that's the mythical sponsor of my podcast. I don't even know what that means. It's just saying it is fun. <laughs> 
Yeah, now, well, that's when you brought oh the Massachusetts. That's the kind of sign you see everywhere. You oh. <laughs> now, Dana, what what would we find if we were to freeze the closing credits? Oh, uh, yeah, but we, you know, it's the show's ten minutes long, so we make it as as as, and we have all of the the regular credits, and then we have stuff interspersed within the credits to keep to keep people uh, paying attention. And it's it's you know. Joel Hodgson, who created Mystery Science Theater, uh, said something that really stuck with me once about a joke. We're old buddies. And uh, he said, you know, not everybody will get it, but the right people will get it. <laughs> um, oh, right. And so, yeah, we'll have, a, you know, we'll have like a, a telephone consultation, Martha Mitchell. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll, we're not we're not afraid to we're not afraid. We'll do a David Beagleman reference. Uh, we're not yeah. we're not afraid. Uh, we're not afraid to go deep. Uh, you know, a union representative who's asking. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, we like we 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 pack we we pack it pretty solid. Yeah, and, it's... and the beauty of it is, it is a show unto itself. We're not doing this because we want someone to see it, and then we'll get a thing, and then we'll do it here, and it will become right. another. It is what it is. No, it I, is what I it recommend is. for We're the doing another season of it okay. for uh, the unschooled and hanging with Doctor Z. You have to watch, and I guess they can lo download these on your website. They're only ten it, minutes yeah. long. You got to see with the Doctor Pat, Z. Doctor Oswald yeah. episode is killer yeah it's so Patton and uh Patton and, and uh, dr z are uh are are, are pretty reference savvy <laughs> yeah. we we, yeah. we, they, we went toe to toe yeah they're they're the episodes we yeah we have uh um we had stephen weber tim uh i'm just reading the guest stephen weber tim meadows bobcat uh janet varney i was a guest huh? uh Yes, and you, Doctor Z interviews you as if he's your friend's uncle at a barbecue. <laughs> it's very, very, yeah. It's very, it's very Midwest. Why aren't you more famous? Don't you <laughs> want to be more famous? I don't understand. No, it's, it's just how it is. It's just packed I with, love, packed uh, with advice. Roots. And we're going to talk about your comedy roots because I always find that fascinating. Uh, you, yeah. you were—I mean, just starts because you—you you started with a lot of famous people in San Francisco, but yeah, well, I started in in, uh, in Boston originally. Oh, that's what uh, I wanted to know because you—you—you you, yeah. you went to Framingham for a year. Started, <laughs> How do you know that? <laughs> I, I've had you totally vetted. <laughs> uh, but but that's what I wanted to know because it says that you. You started at 17, but then moved to San Francisco. But I wondered how you avoided the very uh, rich Boston stand-up market. That would. That oh, I, I didn't. I was a big part of it. I, I started doing stand-up uh, uh, less than two weeks out of high school. I did my first open mic at this place in Boston called the Ding Ho, which is sort of, sort of legendary comedy club in Boston. Stephen Wright was discovered there. And then I went and went to college for uh, a couple of years, but I was always coming back and doing open mics and stand up. And then uh, and then I lived in Boston and, and worked as a comedian uh, in from uh, in 84 and 85. And then I moved uh, to San Francisco in uh, in late 80. Yeah, I, I stayed in Boston, 85, 86, moved to San Francisco in 87. Um, Two of the hotbeds of the growth of Spain. yeah no they were they were it was you know I, people don't understand and this is in the mid eighties at the comedy boom and and I worked a ton and the and the here's why I worked a lot in Boston at the time as a comedian in the mid eighties I had a car and I didn't do drugs. <laughs> wow, so what, you were but that meant, well, here's why that was important, because there were gigs in Boston and there were gigs. There were one nighters all over Massachusetts. You know, there was a one nighter in West Stockbridge, Massachusetts on Saturday and Amherst, New Hampshire on Friday and Quincy, Mass on Thursday. And, the, and they would and comedians were just working every night. I mean, I was 20 years old making $800 in cash a weekend doing stand-up comedy. I mean, it was, it was ridiculous. And because I had a car, I could drive comedians to these other shows. Right. And, and they always liked it when I did it 
because they didn't have to share their drugs with me <laughs> because I wasn't interested. Yeah. So there was a get him. <laughs> so you were there. You, you were in the Boston. It was it was Stephen Wright. One of the brilliant. Yeah, well, he had moved on and become funny. But, but I mean, I mean, where yeah. where they grew because that town. Yeah, yeah. Stephen standard. Wright, Bobcat, Lenny Clark, Lenny Clark, guys, like, Bobcat, uh, go for it. Dennis they, Leary was uh, was out of there, and then and then people that aren't necessarily famous, but people like Steve Sweeney, Don Gavin, uh, you know, these, these local uh, legends, Ken Rogerson and all of these people, it was an incredibly fertile ground uh, to become a comedian. You would work every night with great comedians and in front of very tough audiences because yeah, it's Boston. Like the New York type thing. Yeah, yeah and exactly. Then, and then, you moved and to then San I went to San Francisco, which is like slipping into a hot tub. But, you know, but, like, but it, this was early to mid 80s and yeah, mid -80s. my my only reference with that is bobby slayton told me one time <laughs> uh that um it costs him money to come down and do showcases in la because you could make a living in san francisco with 100%. all the paying clubs and so you came out of this petri dish where Robin was working, Dana Carvey, Paula Poundstone, mm -hmm. Bobby Slayton, all in the Bay Area. I did, my, my only reference to this was I never worked there. I worked there once at Cobb's Pub for one night. <laughs> but I, I just, it was, it was a showcase. I didn't even get sure. paid. But, That's where but, I cut my teeth, really. But, uh, but I, remember, I remember they used to have these comedy competitions down here. And they do yeah. a night at the Ice House. Then they do one at the Comedy and Magic Club. And these guys would all come down from San Francisco and beat the shit out of the L.A. comics <laughs> and take their little money and go back and up go to the Bay up. Area yeah, and make sure. a living at it. Yeah, and you I could just absolutely thought, make a living. How, how are we ever going to compete with these people? You know, Goldthwait, who I knew from Boston and, you know, and, uh, you know, is to this day I one of my best friends. Um you know, he he was not only making a living in San Francisco as a comedian, he was making a great living in San mm -hmm. Francisco as a comedian, um, you know, and yeah, he went down to L.A. and um, you know, probably lost money right away and then hit with Police Academy and started making movies. I was working at the comedy store one night and it was the night that they were having Whoopi Goldberg do a showcase for Spielberg and Mike Nichols and all these people involved with the color purple and Bobcat opened for her and I'd never seen him before. And it was a haunting experience. It was, <laughs> it, not, I mean, it was brilliant, but it was so different and weird. I thought that's the bravest man I've ever seen. On well, stage. it's, it's, it's interesting because what, what, what I knew because I, I, I knew him, you know, like, you know, we all were the same age and, and, um, we all liked the same stuff. We liked punk music and, you know, bad science fiction movies and, you know, comic books. We weren't jocks. We weren't, and you know, um, and, and what people who didn't, Bob's act is it was, it was very punk. He was making fun of stand-up comedy mm -hmm. uh, and people didn't understand that, you know, which is to me, which makes it even funnier, but like, you know, Bob is, Bob is, He's directed like six movies. I mean, he's a and written, you know, written and directed films. He's a brutally intelligent yeah. man. He's brilliant. Um, yeah. yeah, and he's he was. It's performance art. It's a very Dadaist kind of thing. What he was doing, making you know, making fun of stand-up comedian. What if the what if the guy was so nervous that he literally couldn't function? That was the origin <laughs> of that character, and 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 always doubted him that people didn't understand that right. <laughs> and, and he did he did the world's greatest bono impression that was ever yes he did oh, he, well they look alike God. anyway yeah. they, look, they look alike anyway but yeah he it always it always uh, beguiles him and you know we have a we have a concert film that we shot just before the pandemic called joyride he and i went on the road together did shows together and you know we were filmed driving to the it's literally february of 2020 we filmed it yeah. and we're just now uh shopping it and um you know so we're tight and and to this day he doesn't understand that people that don't understand what he's doing he just scratches his head 
Well, um, being a, a sort of showbiz lore fanboy, yes, very did much. you have any early experiences when you entered show business of uh, like encountering some people that you had watched and enjoyed growing up? Oh, my God. I, I met everybody. I mean, if I ever write a book, I just want to write a book. Called I met everybody. Um, but to me, and, uh, you know, I grew up in a very working class um, uh, how, uh, environment in, in Massachusetts, and I have a very big family. It's a just big Irish Catholic family, six kids in a three-bedroom house. Um, and, you know, there were like, you know, four things that everybody would agree to watch on television and that everybody would shut up when it was on. And other than that, it was chaos. But, you know, like if, like if a Clint Eastwood movie was on or a James Bond movie was on or uh, the Andy Griffith show was on or if George Carlin was on, everybody would shut up and watch it. And it was, you know, it was no discussion. So Carlin was always my hero. Uh, and I, I wrote him a letter, uh, right when I started out because I, I got very lucky and was on an HBO special after doing comedy less than a year. Wow. Um, it was a, it was comedians that were still in college. It was this weird thing uh, called campus comedy and the actor, John Michael Higgins was on it. And uh, Ed Solomon, who wrote Men in Black mm -hmm. and uh, the Bill and Ted movies was on it. And uh, I was on it. We we're all at our teens. And uh, the producer produced George's specials. And I just wrote him a letter and he wrote me back. Oh, wow. wow. And and then I got to meet him. And then I ended up interviewing him for HBO like a couple of years later. And then we were both in this movie called The Aristocrats. Oh, and, yeah. uh, you know, and, and that is somebody that like we weren't friends, but we were friendly, uh, friendly acquaintances. And uh, and to have that with somebody that you looked up to. Uh, who was like, you know, to me, he was everyone on Mount Rushmore, you know, yeah, it was yeah. just uh, uh, feelings. Exactly. Yeah. And as Fritz is, I'm sure you and as Fritz knows, the, the, the brilliant thing about him was uh, he was he was as nice a man as he was brilliant. I mean, he he, he couldn't have been more solicitous and understanding and, and patient with people. Mm -hmm. And uh, I learned a lot about the, the responsibility of having fans from him. Like I, I, I have been talking to him when people just walked up and interrupted. Like, mm -hmm. We'll talk like, Hey, I saw you in Indianapolis in 1972. And he was always kind and never like, Hey, I'm talking to this guy. Like he was <laughs> no, always. No. And, well, and, the, and, he, and then he would turn to me and say like this, this moment is about them. This is, this moment is not about us. Well, and, uh, you know, he just knew uh, uh, he knew how to do it. He was my hero. He, he was my hero. Yeah. He made I'll, I'll tell you, I, I met him a couple of times when he was because my office was right over the Tonight Show. And I would. Oh, of, sure. Yeah, that's I, right. I, I would lurk in the hall when I, I knew he was going to be on, hoping he would come up and say, oh, my God, you're the greatest weatherman on the planet. <laughs> he, he never he never did that. But my, my experience with him was uh, the first time I ever saw a stand up was George. And they used to have these things oh, really? on the East Coast, and, and they might have had them in Massachusetts, called these summer music fairs, where when the weather got nice, they would erect these Cirque du Soleil type sweeping tents that were very sophisticated. They And they housed like 3,000 people. And I did this one at Valley Forge Music Fair, it was called, with a rotating stage. And, you know, it, when an hour was up, you'd be around at the same place you started. Wow. So the first, I'd never seen stand-up before. I mean, I'd seen it on the on the um, Ed Sullivan show, but I didn't know the mechanics of it. I didn't know that you, you start and you build this block of material and you memorize it over time. Sure. And I saw this guy do 90 minutes of just brilliant observations mm -hmm. without consulting notes. Without mm -hmm. making one error in speech, 
Yeah. And I'm telling you, I felt like it was, I'm sure people had that experience the first time they saw Billy Graham or something, but it, it, it was, it was truly, I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. That's no, eye-opening. It's, it's a religious I, I, experience. It is, I never thought I could is. do it myself, but, but he was the guy that made me just appreciate this art form and no one has ever mastered language better than him. That's all I have. Yeah. And he made, he made it. I mean, you know, it, my my opinion of stand-up comedy is that it it can be an art form, mm -hmm. and, and and he is one of the people that that made Absolutely. it uh, that made it so. Uh, and uh, yeah, and, and I've had weird like you know I was on the second to last Bob Hope special. Um, you know I I I had a very bizarre I've had a very bizarre career in terms great of, experiences. You're diversified. Yeah. Here's how diversified you were. You and your friend Rob Cohen used to write <laughs> jokes for video games. I didn't yes. even know they had jokes in video games. Yeah, we yeah, Rob Rob, who uh came up with the idea for hanging with Dr. Z, um uh we got you know, we we've done a bunch of stuff together, uh all of our life. Uh and uh, yeah, we wrote this video game called Gex at the height of video games in the in the mid to late 90s. And it's the only thing I've done in my career that my kids think is even a little cool. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have three, no, three daughters and uh, the, the two older ones are teenagers now. And and they and they didn't even know that I did it because it's not something that I, you know, I don't talk about myself and that you know their nanny said like well your your dad was in a video game and and they're like what you were in a video game like that's, <laughs> that's awesome but, yeah that was that was what that was what they uh that was the thing the only thing they liked so how are the jokes revealed within the playing of the game well the character it's funny there is a lot of dr z in it really now that i think about it there was a character called gex and he was a gecko lizard and he looked exactly like the geico lizard um but uh and he would go through these levels and he was just johnny Car he would just do wisecracks <laughs> along the way yeah. like uh like uh you know like johnny carson and i'm trying to think of the i'm trying to the, we really went heavy on the carson stuff um and uh and there was uh uh, there was one. T there's one thing where he's on a, yeah, that's him, where he's on a raft, and there's these animals coming out of the water trying to attack him. And the line was something like, uh, uh, "I haven't been this nervous in the water since Elky Summer's hot tub party." <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just like we really had it. We, but man, and when I go on the road, because I still perform for the you know for the love of it uh, you know I, it's like uh i do stand-up comedy the way people golf you know it's like I, I i gotta do it or i go nuts right um and uh i inevitably i will get some of the game to sign oh wow that's so yeah. cool well yeah. i know a lot of people are getting into uh dr z because when denny first told us about it i saw the views the number of views and then researching for this show it's like it's just kind of like it's caught fire. Well, well, yeah. YouTube has this weird algorithm, but doesn't. Uh, but at a certain point, uh, it it metastasizes. Right. Like it goes by magnitude. Like once you get up to ten thousand, then it goes like twenty thousand, forty thousand, eighty thousand. You know. It, yeah, it, because it, it starts showing. Way. It starts showing your video to people that liked similar things. It's now. It's now right. become. Right. And. I don't expect anybody, I, and I, I don't expect anybody to get it. <laughs> you know, the, and I don't know if you know. There's a really uh, Fritz. I'm sure you know Andy Kindler. Oh, of uh, course, um, Andy has a thing that I that I always say. Uh, 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 my target audience is men my age who are me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't. I don't really. Uh, but. Um, uh, but I think because of that, you 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 can come up with something incredibly specific, like hanging with Dr. Z. Like nobody's gonna say, what? How do we really break through? Well, there was a character in a science fiction movie 50 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, though, like what what Andy meant was, if it's amusing to you, it will be amusing to other humans who have similar tastes as yours. Yeah, and, and there so are people, people that, that get... do like it. Yeah. 
And so for people that get into Dr. Z, there's a lot of added value on the website. I highly recommend that you go to the website and you're going to yeah. find things like, for example, mushroom craft. Please explain. <laughs> oh, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Dr. Z's mushroom freakout. Uh, Doctor Z's Mushroom Freakout. Well, you know, uh, was uh, the video game that he did. He, he has, yeah, he has stories. A lot of stories, and uh, he was, uh, yeah, there it is. Uh, Mushroom Madness Papercraft. Uh, he got drunk on a. Uh, the story was it was in the uh, it was in the mid seventies, and every year he would go to a uh, a twenty four hour mahjong fest at Lou Reed and Laurie Anderson's <laughs> Lou Reed and Laurie Anderson's house. <laughs> And, and uh, he uh, he had to get to the airport and fly back to the coast because he was doing a McMillan and wife two-parter. And uh, he, he had hoped to fall asleep on the plane, but he got stuck sitting next to the president of Atari. So uh, he agreed to do this video game just to uh, just to get some sleep on the flight. And we have a really brilliant uh, a guy who developed this. So this is our version of merch. You know, we're, 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 we're pretty uh, uh, egalitarian. We're pretty hippified. This is free. This is, all you have to do is download it and print it. It's like paper dolls. Have, it's yeah, like a paper you doll. Can make a, you can make a little miniature video game with a little miniature Dr. Z that'll stand in front of it, give you the thumbs up. And, uh, and you know, people have done it and people love it. That's one of my other favorite products. The National uh, John Cassavetti's Pudding Academy. Um, <laughs> and what Nimoy kind World. of man loves pudding? John Cassavetti's. That's who. That's <laughs> who. And Nimoy World is one of my favorites. Nimoy There's World Mickey Rooney's Potato Fantasy. Fantasy. Oh, my and God. And then also you have a playlist, the Dr. Z playlist, which features right. everything from Claudine Langer to... Uh, yeah. Dr. Z's... Walter Brennan, is, you know. This, well, this is, this is also, uh, you know... Uh, it takes a village. Uh, this was a lot of Denny Tedesco's work. Uh, Doctor Z, you know, Doctor Z is from the era of the groovy cocktail sixties. You know, Shirley Bassey. Uh, yeah, and and um, you know the Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass version of the sixties. So it's it's his swing. That's his swing and playlist. And uh, like, this is what him and Dominic Dunn would listen to when they're just kicking back by the pool, <laughs> waiting for, uh, yeah. Speaking of nostalgia, let me plug this. On May 7th, on TCM, oh, yeah. Dana's going to be part of a reading of Plan 9 from Outer Space. And I, I only do hysterical. things that start with P-L-A-N. <laughs> and so, but it's, it's, it's a rich cast. Who else is going to be part of this? Star? We do this, we do this show every, I do this show every year and we filmed it. And uh, it has David, uh, David Koechner, Bobcat Goldthwaite, Janet Varney, Lorraine Newman, uh, Deborah Baker Jr., Bob Odenkirk, Jonah Ray, Pat Oswalt, Paul F. Tom, all my friends, all my friends. And uh, if you've ever seen the movie Plan 9 from Outer Space, it is famously, you know, the, famously the worst movie of all time. But it's not by any stretch of the imagination the worst movie of all time, because what makes a movie bad is if it's boring. Plan 9 from Outer Space is never boring. Mm -hmm. It's never boring for a second. Uh, and, and it's not just like a bad movie that's a bad movie. It finds new ways to be bad all the way <laughs> to the end. And, and at the end, when you think they've done it, they come up with something else that's completely oh, yeah. horrible. So uh, this is free. Yeah. People, I mean, if yeah. you get TCM in your cable system, you get this, right? Yes. It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, we, we, uh, we, we did it. Again, we did it uh with uh because it was because of covid uh we did it remotely but we did it black and white we have miniature effects and we, we we're just doing our version of of the script and uh that was uh that's another great example of like a of a of a thing that i really am passionate about that i really love and that we just started doing this uh years ago uh there's a guy named uh uh, Chris Nichols, who writes for Los Angeles Magazine, and he, we were doing um, a benefit for the Bob Baker Marionette Theater. Mm -hmm. There's there's a local L.A. reference. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you know, Chris and I know each other and we're buddies. And, and he said, you know, what you should do is you should do a live reading of Plan 9. Mm -hmm. 
because we used to do back in the days at Largo, we did a live reading of The Day the Clown Cried, which is the Jerry Lewis Holocaust prison camp comedy that was never released. <laughs> it's a genre. Yeah, it is a genre. Uh, but uh, yeah, I look it up. It's a, he did make a movie about a clown at Auschwitz oh and uh, mercifully it was never released, but he did make it. It is on film. Wow. And we did that. And then he said, you should do plan nine. And ag again, it was like, well, no, I'm not going to do it. Well, wait a second. No, I can actually do it. Um, and, and so we did it. And then that turned into a yearly, uh, you know, every Halloween at Largo, we would do plan nine live. And, you know, it's easy. You just have to read a script. So uh, you always get a great cast. And then uh, because of COVID, we, we, we filmed it. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you talk about, you know, the people that you've met uh if you remember the uh the 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 movie ed wood the tim burton movie mm -hmm. ed wood in the, yeah. in the in the 90s um i so like again like there's a movie that that is a great example of did they make this for anybody other than <laughs> me like I, I know that i'm but how how do they really think anyone else is going to go to see this movie? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and, 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 and since then I've become super close friends with the, the writers and, and uh, um, well, they're the people that I know Chris Shapan through. But so at that time, I was doing uh, a documentary uh, that I made on, on horror movie hosts, because that's a, it's the only job I think I'm actually qualified to. <laughs> um, and uh, I wanted to interview Vampira, who started in Los Angeles. It was the very first person to ever do it in, in 1954, uh, started it here in, here in L.A. And uh, knew someone who worked at the Hollywood Book and Poster Store uh, who knew her. And I wrote her a letter and gave it to my friend. And she came. Uh, she didn't have a phone. She was very reclusive. Um, uh, and I interviewed her and then uh, I wrote her a letter thanking her for, for doing the interview. And, and she wrote me back. And then we uh, I wrote her back. I took her to lunch uh, and we became incredibly close uh, for the last 15 years of her life. Uh, we were uh, we were we were you know, she was in her 70s and 80s. Um, but, uh, you know, sort of like the if, if you remember the movie Ed Wood, the relationship that Ed Wood had with Bela Lugosi, I ended yeah. up having with Myla. Her wow. name was Myla Nermi. And uh, and uh, it was so funny. I became such a fan of that movie. I ended up living my own version. <laughs> um, but right. uh, she's in she's depicted in in the Plan 9 uh, read. We have a very uh, actress named Kat Augustin uh, plays her. And, uh, um, but yeah, no, we, of all the people that like I met and knew, like, I don't, I, like, I think it's cool that I did the Bob Hope special. Like, you know, that's all right. But like, no, I was friends with Vampire. Yeah, so no, because that means, cool. <laughs> that, means more, that means more to you. Much more. Yeah. It's talking to and, the 12 year old kid that you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's very it's very true. Like the you know, like the um like Rob and I Rob and I, Rob Cohen and I did a, a show on MTV in the mid nineties called Super Adventure Team, which was um a parody of the Thunderbirds. It was the movie Team America, but before Team America, I like to stress. Um <laughs> and there and for and so for the lead actor for the voice we asked adam west we didn't know adam west oh. but we wanted to meet adam west yeah so we ended up becoming friends with adam west <laughs> like you know, it's like that's so cool like, i'm much, much you know it's like look when i worked on the simpsons we had the rolling stones on i was much more excited to meet adam west <laughs> i hear you hey i, I want to go ahead go ahead with you no, I hear you. That's just, it's like, like the stuff that matters to you when you're forming self is the stuff that will continue yeah. to matter to you. Can, I, can I, think, I ask you a question about the Simpsons before we get too far down the road here? Sure, but then I have to tell my quick Adam West. Story. Oh, no, okay. tell your Adam West story. I didn't know you had yeah. one. Here. It takes 20 seconds. No problem. <laughs> it takes 20 seconds. So Rob and I, we do the, but we work with Adam West. We do the show. It's on a year. It goes by. 
two years later that, you know, they had these celebrity autograph shows at the Beverly Garland mm-hmm. Holiday Inn on Vineland. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And Adam is going to be there. So so Rob and I are like, all right, we've got to go. We got to go see Adam. And we're rehearsing like he's not going to remember us. We'll say like, hey, you don't remember us. We did that thing. Thank you so much for doing it. And it'll, it'll be and hopefully he'll be nice and and he'll be cool. <laughs> and so, you know, and we're in our early 30s now. We're we're adults, you know, and uh, we start we walk towards his table and he looks up. And he goes, here comes trouble. <laughs> how, how are you, geniuses? And we were, we were giddy. Like, we were like, oh, like ah! we were shrieking like those girls at the Shea Stadium watching the Beatles play. Like, we were just beside ourselves that Adam West knew who we were. That's couldn't, adorable. Couldn't get over it. And again, and that voice, he had that really distinct that voice. voice. And again, and I... I've rarely encountered the opposite of this, you know, painfully nice. Wow. Adam, you know, yeah. like these, I've been so lucky that everybody I've met that I've looked up to and that were my heroes, they've been great. And it would be heartbreaking if they weren't, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No. But it, like I met Jerry Lewis, so it happens. It does happen. I, yeah, I, uh, uh, I know a couple of other very, very famous prickly pears that I well, steer yeah. clear of. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes like it, you just catch them on a bad day because in my radio career, I, I interviewed a lot of celebrities and you'd get yeah. Dionne Warwick in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Boy, Not, you're really running the gamut. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, went over to her house a couple of years later. Couldn't have been lovelier. Made cookies, you know. So sure, it's just really yeah. same thing I, happened with Roddy McDowell. Caught him in a bad moment. A year oh. later, he was a doll. I've I've heard that about I've heard that about Roddy. Um, uh, I, it's so funny um, when uh, obviously uh, I love Planet of the Apes. There was a time when I owned the most expensive piece of Planet of the Apes memorabilia in existence, Roddy's house. No. <laughs> when my wife and I, my ex-wife and I were, uh, we were married and we had a house and, but we needed a bigger house because we were going to start our family. And we were looking at this one house and uh, it was a little bit big and it was a little out of our price range, but it was doable, you know? And, uh, and then the, the realtor goes, yeah, there was an actor that used to live here, Roddy McDowell. He was in some, and I could feel my wife's eyeballs burning <laughs> a hole in the back of my head. And then we just, we walked out and was like, well, I guess we found our house. <laughs> wow. I better love it. Yeah. And we, and we lived there, right? Yeah. He was, uh, I, I'd heard actually, I, I had my, he was, he, was very rude to my dentist. Oh no! no. <laughs> you know, years ago. Yeah, there's yeah. other people that are famously hard to take. I don't want to mention any names. Maybe one rhymes with Bl- Blillium Blattner. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's been rumored. It's been said. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you about the Simpsons because it's historic and it's the, yeah. one of the longest running shows in television. I, I I mean, just knock down, drag out, funny every week. How how do the how does the writing work on that show? How do you break out stories? Who do you do you work alone when you write? Do you work with a partner? How, how does it work on that show? Well, I'm I'm very I'm really indebted to the show because it taught me uh, how to be a writer. You know uh, how to be a good writer, um, and I learned a lot. Uh, uh, there, especially from uh, the specific people, uh, 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 Mike Scully, uh, George Meyer, these like names that you see on the show, uh, John Schwartzwelder. Um, you just see their names, but like just w- being watching them work uh, really raised my game. And, um, you know, uh, the way stories. Ha- you know, happen is you're in the room and you're pitching to, you know, 12, you know, it's a murderer's row, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, you, yeah. know every, you know, and, and in fact, it's funny, I was describing it like 
there's if you there's no polite laughter in that room you know if your joke isn't good you'll sit in that silence and like it <laughs> um, because the theory is like no we think you're good you're here we're not, we're not going to yeah. waste time coddling you yeah um we've all blown some clams as they say and uh no well for my first episode i you know i had an idea um my dad i my dad was a bartender uh and i i would love mo and i want to do a show where uh mo uh, where homer had to take over mo's something happened to mo and homer had to take over mo's uh and because uh, i had some experience of like having your dad work at a bar Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things I knew there's places you could go to. Specific. Yeah. And then so somebody goes, yeah, maybe, maybe Mo, maybe Mo goes back to like a refresher course in bartending school, like surgeons have to do. Like every two years, you're going to go back to school. And then that spawns an idea. And, and then it's very collaborative. And then you'll, and then you go out and you write up, you know, a very detailed outline, like a 21 page outline. And then you, then they'll tear that apart. Then you write the script and then you tear that apart. And then, then you bring in the script and they rip it to shreds. Uh, you know, you're lucky if three or four things survive, um, but it's always being made better. And, you know, it, it's, I, I don't say that with any, I'm not grumbling. It's, a, it's how it works and it gets better. And, you know, writing on a television staff is nowhere to be if you think that your words are precious uh you know if it, it's just you're 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 there you're a part of a team you're a part of a process um and you know i because of that i have i very lucky that i have very healthy attitudes towards towards collaboration and you know, I'm writing a movie now for somebody and I'm getting paid a lot of money to write it. And, uh, you know, notes are helpful. And even if they're not helpful, if it's somebody else's money, you better listen. You know, you might not agree, but you have to listen. And uh, but rarely, even if it's not a good idea, if it challenges your idea, it will let you see if your idea is strong enough to withstand a challenge. Mm. Uh, and all that stuff is good. All that stuff is 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 healthy and and good, and that's the reason the show has lasted as long as it has. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, Jim Brooks, Jim Brooks instilled in that show a a brutal commitment to quality um, wow. that yeah. is un, that is unforgiving, and the show benefits from it. Yeah, and that's why every episode is timeless. So you just they're just going to live forever. And and I. And I put that brutal commitment to quality not only in my MTV puppet show, but in my YouTube <laughs> monkey talk show. <laughs> well, as if you're not busy enough, then you have the Dana Gould Hour podcast, which is really good. And I love the one you did with Cliff Nesteroff. Oh, yeah. Because he wrote this book about Native Americans and comedy. Yeah, we and had a just the title comedy. alone yeah. will get yeah. you to buy it. It says... We had a little real estate problem, which is one of the funniest <laughs> things I've ever heard. Wow. But anyway, yep. you're, you're really good at all the things you do. You're a very talented person. I'm so glad you were with us today. I'm, I'm really good at the things I let you see me do. <laughs> the well, stuff I'm right. bad at, no one sees. That's okay. You have a thick and resilient facade like we all do. That's good. What would, what would happen, what would happen if, if Jiminy Glick sat down with Dr. Z? Oh, they would implode. Oh, it would be man, great. Would be yeah. Fun. they. I, Jiminy Glick and Dr. Z have to go on inside the actor's studio. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, uh, if, if I, one, uh, someone said one thing about my podcast, I know we all have to go, but I think this goes back to Denny Tedesco. Um, uh, Denny, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of, of that era and of Denny's dad's music and, and of, of all that stuff. And I'm a particular fan of, I love the Beach Boys and I love the story of the Beach Boys father. Um, he was their manager for a long time, Murray Wilson, and he was a brutal man. He was abusive and cruel and a terrible human being by all mm. accounts. And of course, only the children of that guy could write fun, 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 because it's all <laughs> because it's aspirational. They don't know what fun is. They're imagining what fun would be like. Um, of course it is. And Denny gave me a, 
a, uh, a, a an L.A. call-in radio show from 1966. Forget the name of it. And Murray Wilson is one of the guests. Oh, my gosh. And I patterned the sound of my podcast on that show. I have jingles. I have a, a sung introduction. Um, it's the Dana Gould Hour. It's really good. Xylophones. And yeah, it, it sounds like a, uh, a, a call-in radio show from 1966. Yeah, that that's the, so cool. That was the goal of it. That's a really cool aesthetic. Yeah, so it find is. all this stuff on his website, Hanging with Dr. Z and the podcast and all that stuff. Yeah, and, and now, com. Yeah, there's lots of uh, socials to share because you've got Dr. Z socials and you've got Dana Gould socials. So people need to follow you wherever they can find you. And Dr. As Z- I say about Dr. Z and my podcast, free and worth it. <laughs> that is beautiful. <laughs> all right. We're going to post all of this stuff in our show notes, Dana, so that everybody can find you very easily. And here come our closing credits. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where we are Media Path Podcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. We want to thank our wonderful guest, Dana Gould. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Demanda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Planker, here with Fritz Coleman, who has something more to say. If you enjoyed this episode of Media Path, it would help us tremendously. It would make us more discoverable by potential new listeners if you leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're new here, and this is your first time with us, please check out our back catalog. You may even find us binge-worthy. Recent episodes include a look back at pop music memories with Gary Puckett and the Cow Sills. Going back to the very beginning, you'll hear exciting and exclusive interviews with Henry Winkler and Keith Morrison. Thank you for spending this great hour with us today, and we would be overjoyed if you took a moment to share your thoughts with us or recommend us to a friend. Bless you. And here comes our catchphrase, Fritz. We could even say it together. We will see you along the media path.